Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've been talking about the places of Advent during our Advent uh, season, and we've looked at Bethlehem, we've looked at Nazareth, we've looked at dreams, the place of dreams, and now we're looking at the desert. And let's imagine the situation or the scene that uh, Jennifer just read about. Jesus has been in the desert. This happens right after his baptism, and it's at the very beginning of his ministry, and he goes into the desert to pray and to fast and is tempted. And so let's imagine what you would feel like in those circumstances and what he's probably thinking and feeling and what he is, um, he's probably dirty, he's probably smelly, he's probably exhausted, and he's most likely starving, maybe on the brink of actual starvation. And then it says that the devil shows up. And so we can imagine the devil who is uh, standing on Jesus' shoulder in red tights and with a pitchfork and horns and maybe a little cape, you know, very, very threatening. Because that's how we imagine the devil. That's how we imagine Satan. And maybe there's some good reason for that sort of in the All Hallows' Eve tradition that we mock what is evil by dressing them up in kind of cartoon costumes. But we've made Satan, the devil, the personification of evil, we've made him much more tame, much more cartoonish, and therefore much more dangerous because he just doesn't seem as threatening. And so he's able to kind of get into our world in a way that we might not allow if we were a little bit more on alert, so to speak, but maybe it's because this idea of a real devil, a real Satan, trips us up. But think with me that if it's possible to believe in a personal God, a personal good, or maybe even to believe that that good could exist, isn't it just as likely that perhaps, isn't it just as possible to believe that there's perhaps a real personification of evil that is at work in some cognitive way, in some strategic way in our world. Maybe believing in that isn't quite as much of a stretch as we might think. But the most persuasive reason might be that Jesus seems to think that there is a real personification of evil at work in the world and that he takes 
this very seriously. Not a devil in a funny costume, but an evil that is opposed to everything that God is and God does and God wants to do in the world. And even in our modern scientific materialistic age, we still tend to use this idea, this term of evil, that that term still means something, even if it's a presence or a force or a pull, something that is mysterious, we still talk about the presence of something that is opposed to what is good and noble and lovely in our world, and that we interact with that on a daily basis. We read about it in the news. We see it in our own personal lives, something that is working against our good. And we're in that season where we're approaching the time where we begin to kind of look back on this year and see how it's gone and maybe think about what are some changes that we might want to make moving into the new year. How long will those plans, how long will those things that we, can, we call New Year's resolutions last if we give sort of minimal effort to maintaining them? We imagine now how good it would feel next December If we have a year of better diet, maybe a little bit more exercise, maybe we begin to sleep for seven hours rather than five and a half, maybe we drink a little bit less, maybe we quit smoking, and we can imagine how we'll feel at the end of the year. And this works for a few weeks. It's relatively easy after the new year to kind of get a couple of weeks under our belt of moving towards that image that we want for ourselves, but then one day soon we wake up and it's cold and it's rainy and we haven't gotten the seven hours of sleep that we thought and that snooze button on our alarm. The snooze button is the largest button on our alarm, right? It is so easy to press. I mean, certainly the devil is at work in creating that alarm. It's, it's against everything that we try to commit to the night before. It's so easy just to press snooze. And then after a few days of that, we say, well, just forget it. We'll try it again next January. Everything good is hard. Everything good is hard. All the really delicious things that you will eat over the holidays, they're not very good for you. And if you eat too much of them, it's really not good for you. All of the best-tasting stuff can be threatening to our health. Learning a new skill, something that is difficult, it takes time, it's challenging, it takes momentum, it takes staying the course, keeping your body healthy is difficult, it takes effort. Why is that? It seems that we're interacting with a world that is working kind of against us. Even our bodies are working against us. And is it too much of a stretch to say that some part of that is sort of a strategic move of this kind of evil personified in our world? Well, what if we extrapolate that to kind of the meta realm, the cosmic realm? Because these are just personal inconveniences, personal things that we have to wrestle with. But when we think about the way that evil is at work, in the larger world, probably no one here would deny that there's something going on. Maybe we don't know how to talk about it, we don't know how to label it, maybe we wouldn't consider it the personification of evil, 
But we certainly see this presence, this force, this idea of evil that is working against us, that without laws, without civil authorities, without contracts, everything seems to move towards entropy, towards chaos, towards conflict, towards inequality. The powerful take more and the weak get less and less. Everything good takes a monumental effort to not only achieve, but then to maintain. And this, friends, is the world that Jesus was born into. This is why this episode is here, so that we can understand the world that Jesus understood and that He chose to be born into. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, does not choose to be born as a monk, as a recluse, as a sage, just kind of sitting in the tower writing out thoughts about spirituality and passing them on. But as he begins his ministry, what happens? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness. You see, he's not led away from what is sinful and chaotic and tawdry and full of temptation. That's kind of how we conceive of pursuing what is holy, is we just kind of occupy a space that is away from everything that we view as kind of evil and tempting. And if we confine that space, then our spirituality, our holiness becomes easy. And that's what spirituality, according to the Bible, looks like. And it's not at all. The Spirit takes Jesus deeper into the desert, into the wilderness, the place that the Old Testament knows is a place of chaos, a place of hunger, a place of death, a place of uncreation. And after several weeks, 40 days, with no food, he's terribly hungry, he's tired, he's exhausted. And think about the time when you are hungry. Maybe just you've missed lunch or lunch is a little bit late. And how often we use that little inconvenience, that little grumble, as sort of justification for acting badly. It's like, well, I was so hungry, or someone got mad at me, or my day just went really badly. And then we can kind of rationalize the way that we make poor choices, or we kind of blow up at our children, or something like that. Imagine 40 days of hunger and being dirty and being thirsty, and exhausted. And that's the time when it says Satan, this personification of evil, chooses to tempt Jesus. He sees an opening. And what we're told is that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean that Jesus has this magic wand or some magical shield or the force to defend himself against temptation. We got to see here that the devil had a very real chance here, just as evil has a very real chance every day in our world. You see, none of us are immune to its sales pitch. We hear stories every day of the most average people doing the most awful things that we can imagine. 
And then they interview their friends and neighbors and colleagues, and what do they say? I would have never thought that was possible. I would have never seen him or her acting in that such a way. Jesus comes to earth in a situation where evil has a real chance. And he comes to earth as us. He inhabits our situation. He walks in our shoes and our skin, as it were, to experience what we experience on a daily basis. He inhabits our human frailty, our human liability toward temptation and toward evil. He's not only, you see, the Son of God, the Messiah, divinity itself, but He's also, the Bible tells us, a genuine human. His divinity didn't super-enhance His humanity. It didn't mutate it in some way. That He has this superhuman strength, this superhuman resistance against evil. Now think about superheroes. We have most of the kids in here this morning. What happens if you shoot Clark Kent? Anyone know, kids? What happens if you shoot Clark Kent? It's not a trick question. You shoot Clark Kent and nothing happens, right? You run over Clark Kent with a bus, nothing happens. Because even when he's wearing his glasses, even when he's wearing his corporate suit and he's going to work as a journalist, he's still Superman underneath this outfit. He looks like a real normal human, but he's not. He's Superman and you can't hurt him. And that might be how we think about Jesus. He looks human enough, but because he's also divine, he has some kind of immunity to sin that we don't have. And that's why he responds differently than any of us would have responded in the same situation. But you see, Jesus was not Clark Kent, and if he had jumped off the mountain as Satan had kind of tempted him to do, then he would have died like any of us would have. He got tired, he got hungry, he got worn out and exhausted, he got irritated, just like you and I did. Everything good that he wanted to see in the world, he had to get up out of bed and choose to pursue even when he was tired, even when his disciples didn't want to cooperate. Just like you and I, he had to pursue what is good. He had to resist what is evil. But you see, the story here is, in fact, larger than just Jesus keeping a fast and doing it well, making a New Year's resolution. It's more than just Jesus keeping his commitments where we might not. Matthew isn't just admiring Jesus for his fortitude, but he's writing this larger narrative of hope that is based upon Jesus' performance, his, his ability to resist temptation, resist what is evil in this very moment. He's writing this narrative of hope that has both personal and cosmic meta-dimensions that are very appropriate for us to think about during the Christmas season. What Matthew is writing here has parallels to two of the most important events in the Old Testament that may sound familiar to you, even if you haven't been around church or your church is not a place that you generally show up on Sunday morning. But we've heard the story about the failure of 
of Adam and Eve in the garden. And we've heard the story probably about the failure of Israel in where? The desert. As they're approaching the promised land, and they have this command to go in, and they don't. First of all, with Adam and Eve, do you remember this story of the serpent? This is the personification of evil in another way, or maybe the snakeification of evil. And this snake, we are told, comes to question her in very crafty and very devious ways, attempting to drive this wedge between her and God. And what does this serpent say, we are told, that has God really said you can't eat from the tree? Really? Look how beautiful it is. It's just standing there. Why would God withhold that from you? Surely a good, loving God wouldn't keep this from you. And then fast forward to our passage in Matthew. In the very same way, Satan comes to Jesus and says, Why are you, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, why are you left to starve in the desert? Turn these stones to bread. You're hungry. There's no reason that you should go without. You see, attempting to drive a wedge between Jesus and and His Father, Jesus and God, Jesus and God's plan. You see, in both circumstances, these questions are meant to challenge and question the goodness of God. And Matthew's wanting us to see contrast between Adam and Eve's failure and Jesus' victory, where Adam steps over a line and he secures humanity's curse. Jesus stays behind that line and he secures humanity a blessing. One tries to be God, he assumes the authority of God And the world is plunged into death and chaos by a decision to question God's goodness. And Jesus, in a very similar situation, decides instead to trust God, setting in motion, what? A reconstitution of humanity, a reconstitution of the world, in fact, of everything that went wrong. Do you see the lines, the literary connections that Matthew is making that are so beautiful? And then we see the parallels between Israel and the desert, where he succeeds where they failed. That Jesus is a new Adam, but he is also a new Israel, a new Moses. Because what is Jesus quoting here? In all of the times that Satan tempts him, Jesus responds back with words from Deuteronomy. That is, second Deuteronomos, second law. This is a renewal of the old covenant, the renewal of the covenant that came down with Moses. And so in quoting Deuteronomy to Satan's temptations, he's setting himself up as this new Israel, as a new Moses. And in this passage, Jesus, you see, is going to the very place that Israel went, that is to the desert, to the wilderness. And all through the Old Testament, the wilderness is this place of formlessness. It's a place of void. It's a place of sin and evil. It's emblematic of 
the opposite of everything that God made the world to be and wants the world to become. And the Israelites, in distrusting God on the threshold of the promised land, were held in sort of this this captive, wandering state for 40 years. And how many days is Jesus tested in the wilderness? Forty. He's retracing Israel's steps, and he is succeeding, you see, where they failed. And what's more, Deuteronomy being the recapitulation of the covenant, that means it was written after Israel had moved into the promised land. And it is saying, how should we now carry out our identity as Israel. It's after the time of the wilderness. And by invoking Deuteronomy so consistently, Jesus was not only recapitulating Israel's wilderness journey in that period, but he's pointing for you and I to this idea of promised land, not of a physical space, but of this meta-big cosmic idea of one day Israel, one day God's people will move into the promised land for real. How? By Jesus succeeding where Adam failed and where Israel failed. You see, tucked into Jesus' words here is this promise of eternal, everlasting peace. It's the promise of Christmas, right? And this is why the desert is a place, unexpectedly, of Advent. Jesus, you see, as we conclude, is far more than just an example to follow. And this episode is far more than just sort of a a way, a system to put into place whenever we're faced with temptation. Let's just think like, operate like, live like Jesus, although it certainly can be that. But what this episode is, is that Jesus is going into the desert to suffer on behalf of you and I. That his victory over Satan is meant to be a victory in all of those places where humanity, where you, where I, where we fail. His going into the desert and resisting temptation and basically facing down evil. It's almost like a classic Western trope that he goes into the desert and he faces down the guy in the black hat so that he can bring a new world into being, so that he can bring us into the real promised land where your most beautiful aspirations actually come true. And what he is saying is he faces down evil for you and for me. Is he's saying that he will go to any length. He will go and starve in the desert for 40 days. He will face the greatest temptation that any of us could face to restore you, to restore humanity to the Father's love. He comes saying, I will be hungry in the desert so that you can be well-fed forever. He comes saying on his way eventually to a cross that he will choose to be abandoned at the cross to restore your soul and to open up not the desert, 
not 40 years of wandering, but open up the real and lasting promised land. And that is actually what the promises, the places of Advent are pointing to. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we continue to contemplate this season, would you help us to take hold of what it actually represents and what it actually means, not to diminish what goes on on a Christmas morning and all the joy of unwrapping presents and all the joy of family, but would you help us, just give us an inkling of eternity breaking into those moments of all of the things that we long for, are nostalgic about, that we would have this idea that those are connected somehow to something that is actually real. And Father, I pray that as we walk into this new week, as we encounter evil of all sorts, evil that is outside of us, that is confronting, and yes, the evil that is inside of us, that is wanting to manifest itself in our lives, I pray that God, you would give us the strength to resist and pursue what is good and lovely and beautiful and healing, not only for ourselves, but for a hurting world and for our neighbor. And we pray as we come to the table that you would make that more and more to be a reality in our souls, in our bones. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.